welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, Sarah Krasnerstein on her quarterly essay, Not Waving, Drowning. In this brilliant mix of portraiture and analysis, Sarah Krasnerstein tells the stories of three women and their treatment by the state while they're most unwell. What do their experiences tell us about the likelihood of institutional and cultural change? Krasnerstein argues that we live in a society that often punishes vulnerability, but shows we have the resources to mend a broken system. But do we have the will to do so, or must the patterns of the past persist into the future? Chloe Hooper will join Sarah in conversation. And now, here's the host of the discussion, Readings Programming Manager, Christine Gordon. My name is Christine Gordon. I am the Programming Manager for Readings, and on behalf of Black Ink, And on behalf of Readings, I'm delighted to have you all here today. I want us all to reflect that wherever we're coming in from and wherever we've landed, that at the moment we're living on land that's not ours. We're living on land that's not being ceded. It, of course, is owned by the First Nations people. And I know in this sort of acknowledgement of country that it's important on behalf of all of you here that I send my respects to their elders, but I reckon we can do better than that in 2022. I reckon that if we're in a room full of readers, of thinkers, of sharers, then perhaps what we can do is make a commitment to read some of the stories by First Nations people, to read some of the poetry, to understand the song lines, and Once we've listened to the First Nations people, we take those conversations and the imagery and all that we've learned from their words into our dinner parties, into our barbecues, into our book groups, so that we can better understand this beautiful country that we live on. I'd like to introduce you to a special friend of readings, someone who has shopped with us since the beginning of time, someone who has launched her books with us, and someone who I read nearly every weekend through her novels, through her journalist work, in various articles. I'd like you to make very, very welcome Chloe Hooper, one of the great commentators, surely, of our time, and she's going to be talking to her friend Sarah. Over to you, Chloe. Oh, Chris, thank you so much. And and thanks for being, well, first, obviously, an inspirational speaker and also such a a great supporter of Australian writers, particularly through the last uh, crazy couple of years. It's my absolute pleasure to be launching this extraordinary essay, which also, you know, it's not really an essay, Sarah, it's a book. And I just found this to be uh, utterly brilliant, Sarah, and everyone here. And I'm going to sort of begin by saying that Sarah ends this essay talking about systems change. And I'm going to assume that everyone watching tonight is going to go and, and, and buy this and read it, but also sort of start a kind of chain letter where, you know, we each get, I don't know, however many copies and send them to people who who might work within our mental health, our social and our criminal justice systems, but also who might have a vested interest in mental health, which is basically all of us, to start our own systems change with, with this amazing piece of work. Because Sarah really tackles some of the biggest issues 
about our society and our safety nets, I can't do it justice. It's full of really muscular understanding and reading of of legal theory, but also the the multitude of of reports that have um, we've had recently into mental health. But also full of her sort of trademark insight, and it's so beautifully written. So it's probably actually most useful for me to ask Sarah, you know, tell us how did this how did this happen? Where has it come from, Sarah? So thank you for that. And thank you for being here tonight, Chloe. I'm always very honored about this. It had a very long gestation period is the short answer. I was practically researching and writing for about 14 months, uh, which is long for a quarterly essay, even though, you know, it kind of becomes itself in those final kind of six weeks and you're updating it as, you know, news is changing and statistics are changing. So that's kind of the, the race at the end. It feels very short. But the ideas in it have been kind of bouncing around for me for about 20 years. First, in my legal life, uh, where I worked in criminal legislative reform and research, I was seeing again and again people ending up in the criminal justice system who should have had earlier, better options for health support. So that was just clear from all that work that I was doing the different ways that they were treated uh, in the court system and that real punitive response where there should have been a therapeutic response or support. So that was kind of the academic or professional way in which I became really interested in the field. Personally, I have a lived experience of severe anxiety and depression that really impacted my functioning quite severely uh, in my 20s. And I haven't spoken about this because I really didn't even think about it until the last few days. It occurred to me that this started off as my first go at my master's. I was enrolled in master's of law at Melbourne Uni with two beautiful supervisors, uh, Andrea Durbach, Public Interest Advocacy Center, and Di Otto, and real legends in the legal fields that they are in, respectively. And I wanted to look at this kind of glaring gap between our tendency to look at sunnier characterizations of the national character in historical context as the result of our historical experience, but a marked reluctance to look at the darker aspects in that same framework. So I specifically wanted to look at ideas of mateship and our border policies. I was unable to finish that thesis or even really get started in a rich, thick way because my mental health was appalling in those years. I was 25, 26, took a break, came back. I found a beautiful therapist who was very uh, helpful and I re-enrolled, slightly different focus and changed it into a PhD. Long story. Here I am now. Eventually things happened in between, obviously. Um, You want someone to tell you a neat story, get someone else, get another writer. But the point is, those ideas have been live for me. This gap between, you know, the ideal and the practice and what we could learn there about, you know, ourselves and each other. How did it feel picking this back up again? I mean, you you really you really have a sense, Sarah, of that this is, you know, 14 months is a long time to be thinking about something deeply, but that that it goes back further than that. So what was it like, you know, opening up the drawer and taking this out? Like, it's never good. And I think you know this because if there's something that you, there's always just this like damp realization that there's a book 
or a very long form piece or even, you know, something that's going to require so much more thinking and research and work and drafting than you anticipate. And even the further along we get, those problems don't change. So it is like, ugh, oh shit, I'm going to have to write this. And in a sense, you're kind of called to follow that trail. Now, where you end up after 14 months or the years it takes to research Mm -hmm. uh, your books and mine is not going to be where we thought we were headed when we started, and nor should it be, because then we would have learned nothing over the intervening months or years. Mm -hmm. But the experience of going into an area that's very fertile for you and has lots of connections and meanings, emotional weight, a practical weight, it's stimulating in many ways, but it's a very heavy, heavy responsibility. So all of those emotions uh, at once are part of the process. One of the things which I found so striking and and amazing, I'm holding this up to myself really rather than you, (laughs) is the way that you actually psychoanalyze our mental health system and I just thought that that was so brilliant that I you list this not the a number of royal commissions and and talk about the way that public inquiries are a ritual of Australian society through which the violated moral order is condemned and an idealized image of the collective is restored and people come together often the professional classes mm-hmm. feel better and then we do it again and again and you, you, uh, how brilliant to sort of talk about how repetition can actually be a, a form of self-denial and what's the sort of common individual neuroses is actually writ large on our, our society. It's an interesting framework. I say at the beginning, you know, you can't fit the body politic into a therapist's room, but, and, you know, it's a big but, Freud and before him, others have been writing about group psychology and social psychology and group behavior for over a hundred years. So this is not a new area. The knowledge that the poison that is unaddressed in our interior world leaks out into our exterior interactions, whether that's one-on-one relationships, family systems, or collective political behavior. That has been written about, you know, I mean, Freud did that first. The German was 1917, group psychology and the ego, written in Austria, where those exact behaviors would have killed him, sure as the sun rises 20 years later. There's nothing new about it. But again, we have that reluctance. We're happy to, you know, talk about the ways in which this white settlement has presented challenges that we've overcome, what have you, blah, blah. The second we start to look at the, that dark aspect, suddenly there's debate, suddenly it becomes a very contested terrain. Yes. My therapist once said to me something that I found so striking, which was we are heavily invested culturally in a individualized conception of psychopathology. And we become very uncomfortable when we then extract what we know about human action and reactions into our collective political life. When I think it's far less controversial if you do apply those psychoanalytic frameworks. But the question still stands whether we, you know, take a hardcore psychological or psychiatric framework or whether we just consider a cause and effect. The larger question that I 
wanted to ask in the essay was, is this pattern of formally examining government activity in the sphere of our mental health institutions or health institutions, and then cherry picking from or ignoring the findings and then doing it again, is that pattern related to our collective past? And could that the historical experience of generations that are not very far removed from ours have taught us to look the other way when it comes to anything that can be characterized as weakness or vulnerability, interdependency, instability in ourselves, located only with others, and then ignore it. And that was kind of the thing that I set out to explore. Mm. One of my favourite moments is when you go and speak with Danny Sullivan, is that right? Mm. Yes. Dr. Danny Sullivan, who's the, a forensic psychiatrist and the executive director of clinical services at Forensic Care, and who himself tells you that, to quote you quoting him, the people I most enjoy working with are people with intellectual disability, people with severe psychotic illness, and people who have usually engaged in very serious violent or sexual offending. Can you describe this moment where of the clock, the bird clock? <laughs> You're in his office and you hear a a very familiar sound. So Dr. Sullivan, superbly qualified professional, has a clock that I also had at one point as an Audubon clock and different birds chirp the hour. And if you're a birder, this is great. Everyone else finds this ridiculous. And it is very cute and startling to find this in a secure mental health facility, colloquially known as a hospital for the criminally insane. So that's where we were chatting in his office. And the point of that passage was that we have stigmatized that population for so long. And there is a prepackaged narrative about who they are and what they are. And when we hear about people who are found not guilty because of mental impairment, the criminally insane, we have a natural repulsion and fear and a very punitive response. All of that happens behind closed doors, out of the public gaze. And when we go into those spaces and find out more about the context in which they were acting and which in which those who are helping them are acting, suddenly it becomes far less scary. Suddenly it becomes far more familiar. And like that clock, we're kind of confronted with ourselves there, but for the grace of whatever you want to call it. I'm always looking for a metaphor, but the clock was a lovely little gift. But I thought that's how uh, that's the problem with prurience, Sarah writes. I think sitting under the bird clock, we we squint sneakily through some keyhole, expecting to comfort ourselves with the fate of others, only to find in their dim little rooms the jarringly familiar, just ourselves waiting. That goes back, I think, to that individualized notion of psychopathology, because, and I think that this is a point that. But Danny- also, maybe maybe you would talk to to the idea of splitting that you mention in terms yeah. of our history here. Yeah. So splitting. So I talk about inability that we have to operationalize the findings of numerous public inquiries, numerous royal commissions, and you know state and territory federal reports into men- mental health. The problem is not that we don't know what's wrong or how to fix it. The problem is very much a failure of political will. And so what could lie behind these ways in which we've absolved ourselves collectively Uh, driven the mental health system into catastrophic failure that causes and compounds human distress. So what lies behind that? So I talk about Freud's repetition compulsion. 
I talk about our defense mechanisms and, you know, we deny information that clashes with our preferred conception of ourselves, who we are, who are those around us are, what society, our society that we've built is. We repress things that we would rather not know. And we split off characteristics that are repellent about ourselves or others and to try to have this false image that we can get along with, which only ends up causing more distress. And, you know, as Freud put it, no respect for reality is lost. So I, as a framework, consider whether splitting could describe the acts of founding the nation, which was a transportation, literally hiving off one of the most marginalized sections of the British population and putting them elsewhere. And to Terra Nullius, once we're there on stolen land, pretending that, you know, we're just starting anew. And from there, if we have a dysfunctional, blinded way of looking at our origins, well, nothing healthy can be built in that context. And because we live in a unified field, we will constantly be putting that discomfort in places where we can tolerate it slightly better, but it's still dysfunctional. So does that framework provide a way of understanding this dysregulated relationship we have to change in our health system for ourselves, our families, our neighbors? Why have we allowed it to be driven into the ground? for so long. It's astonishing. You quote Thomas Insel, uh, an American mental health specialist, and, and his that's a, an incredible line. There's two kinds of families in America, and I mean, you could you can change it to Australia. Yes. There's families that are struggling with a mental illness, and there's families that are not struggling with a mental illness yet. And yet we have gutted um, this system in the last 20 years. It's... Um, And I think like this notion that it's always an individualized idea of mental illness, unwellness or pathology when we know the social determinants of health. Yes. We know that this is very much something that can be ameliorated and addressed. Yes. We know the risk factors that will put people at greater risk of developing mental illness or not recovering in the way that they could. Yet we continue to ignore it and One of the other ideas I wanted to lift up in the essay was this idea of stigmatization because this constant um, conflation of mental illness with perceived weakness or moral manipulativeness, instability, negativity, any word that you want to, you know, substitute in there indicates that, you know, there's something in that relationship, and I talk about the work of Irving Goffman, 1963, none of this is new, certainly not to sociologists, but I think if any of, any of us might know it, but not have the technical language, mm. that the characteristic of having poor mental health, there's nothing inherently bad about that. And Goffman said that with, when it comes to stigmatized characteristics, whether it's racial or ethnic or gender or sexuality or geography, they're fungible. There's nothing inherently discreditable about them. That leads to the idea that it performs a function in the person who is stigmatizing to have something that maintains a social order. And how is that circulated in the water since settlement? How is it presented when we talk about, you know, complete psycho or something being totally insane, totally crazy, little ways that we report on it, um, you know, in the tabloid press, little ways that, you know, we allow it to slip in our political life or our corporate habits. Ultimately, that it's no different from other forms of othering that are prevalent in the country. So if we can't talk about reducing the stigma against mental illness, 
without reducing othering in all its forms because yes. it just keeps on shifting. And we know that stigmatization both creates and exacerbates mental illness and it doesn't select who is going to be the, the stigmatized. Uh, also, this amazing idea that, you know, you'll text people asking, are you okay? I mean, rather than actually <laughs> investing in more more beds or an actual a system where there's um, a continuity of care, which you talk about as being incredibly important. Well, it always struck me about are you okay? Because, you know, I spoke yeah. to a large amount of rural and regional GPs for this, and they were incredibly helpful. And they told me many insightful things. But one of the most fantastic things that they shared with me were often their reasons for for staying in the, those practices, which are frequently under-resourced, certainly when it comes to mental health care, and their kind of drive to stay there and support their patients, they would support, they would, they had disclosed to me their own mental health struggles often. Yes. And so that kind of connected to something that I'd already been thinking about for a number of years of why are we asking someone else if they're okay? Shouldn't we first be normalizing when we are not okay? And, you know, having had that experience personally, how it manifests when you are ashamed to ask for a special consideration at university because you think it kind of pollutes this idea of your credibility or how it how it functions in a workplace when you've run out of your sick days because of physical illness or mental illness and you have nothing left and you're still not well enough to get out of bed. All of these things, how we are, you know, reluctant to ask for help or disclose, you know, when we are not doing well. Yes. So before we can say, are you okay? I think the more important question is, can we say when we are not okay? And that was the lesson of the systems change, which is, yeah, we need more funding. We need more services. We need better integrated services, but that's not going to fix the problem if we have no collaborative relationships that can be sustained by people who are actively you know, being that change that they need to see mm. in others. Yeah. So it's a very much a matter of that personally addressing our own discomforts and our own biases and fears of discredit if we are honest about our own bad head days or weeks or months, whatever, is not something that we can tinker with at the other end and, and think it's going to fix everything. You talk about the, the sociological idea of, of stigma, but also of the other and uh, normals, but also this kind of the, the wise person who can not see the stigma and it seems that you've you know you you seem to have spoken to so many people what was that like you I mean you you're you've heard stories from as you mentioned GPs around the country but also those in the criminal justice mm. system in the, you know from child protection agencies I mean that there's I could go on I mean it's really the breadth of this you know book really is is extraordinary Sarah the more I speak to people, and you would know this as well, when we would do, write factually, the impulse is to kind of chase every rabbit down every hole so you can kind of get the picture of reality because we tell ourselves that, you know, we need to be as accurate as possible, but that only leads to more and more and more areas that we then feel we haven't covered adequately, and that's the job. But the good part about that was that I could start to get a sense of the terrain and what all of these people who were talking about the same thing from vastly different directions were telling me was that you can't just talk about a mental health system for two reasons. The first one is because when we talk about mental health, we're talking about housing and education and policing and prisons, 
We're talking about social interactions and in the culture, in our media environment, all of the ways in which the institutions that kind of govern our daily life. So there's no such thing as just fixing the problem in the mental health system. Yes, those services need greater funding. And yes, those are services that sit in a mental health system, but they are inextricably connected with all of these other areas of daily life. So that's the first thing that they illuminated for me. The second thing was that this experience of stigma. Again, like I said, stigma will exacerbate pre-existing mental illness. It is also capable of causing mental illness. And those effects are compounded for already marginalized social groups. So that's why we see differential effects in the indigenous community, in the LGBTQI plus community, uh, in rural regions, and it presents differently. So what I was hearing again and again and again was people who didn't feel like they had a place in this world. That was a phrase that I heard uh, many, many times over the last 14 months. And it was distressing and quite sad, but also very important because, you know, when you get those echoes across the, the data set, which is just people's experience, you are kind of being let into a piece of not so secret knowledge that people might be as surprised by and as profoundly moved by as I was. So who has a claim to this world? Why are we creating structures that exclude people? What need does that fill in the people who are doing that othering? And what damage is it causing? Tell us about what the need the need is. So Goffman wrote that, you know, stigma maintains group hierarchies. I think we see that in the commentary space. We see that in certain... You, you actually, you know, when you pick out some of those editorial lines from the newspaper that claims to... Speak for all of us. <laughs> speak for all of us. Named um, for all of us. In terms of... African gangs or marriage equality, what have you. So these are things that are all in in the water. We can't have a non-chlorinated area of the pool. We can't allow this from our politicians and our newspapers and our corporate interests and expect that there won't be social repercussions on people's lived day-to-day experience. Young people that were very vocal during the marriage equality debate made that point repeatedly. I talk about how, you know, that systems change knowledge that, you know, we are inextricably connected in a unified field in which you can't just tinker with one area and call it medical, you know, medical policy or health policy and think that everything's going to be fixed. That's radical in a Western governance model, but it's indigenous knowledge and it's the oldest, it comes directly from the oldest continuous culture on earth and indigenous controlled community health organizations have been telling that to government inquiries for, uh, you know, at least since the first national mental health plan and probably before then. So again, the problem is not a lack of knowledge. The problem is a lack of will. And where does that come from? That's why I try to look at the psychoanalytic perspective, which I think just makes intuitive sense. Yes. Well, I love this book and I think that others, you know, who love the trauma cleaner and the believer will really, I think, enjoy seeing you in this mode because it it kind of feels as though the preoccupations of your nonfiction are explored here in a, in a kind of depth. And I, I was struck by the, the quote you used by the art historian Arthur Danto to talk about Goya and the way that it felt that the artist had moved from a world in which there were no shadows to one in which there's no light. 
And I, there was a moment when I, I was, you know, reading with awe, but also Sarah thinking, how are you going to get us out of here? Because, <laughs> I mean, here is this compulsion or repetition to go through the problems. I was really fascinated when you came to the idea of systems change. But I also feel that it links to, in your work, the idea of symphonic arrangement, <laughs> because in The Believer you write about Tikkun Olam. Sorry, tell me how to pronounce that. It's good. You did good. <laughs> the Hebrew phrase meaning repairing the world. So Tikkun Olam is the idea that, you know, we come into a broken world and that each it's incumbent on each of us to do our part in reparative work. I understand that in social justice terms rather than any Kabbalistic mysticism. Anyone here is free to understand it in their own ways as well. But I think that this idea that this was a good idea initially, it's been proven to be uh, a dead end to expect that this is a problem that government will fix, whatever that means. Um, one of the case studies I explore in the essay is about severely disabled woman who was left in prison because there was nowhere else to put her. And there was a line in the ombudsman report that said, because everybody was responsible, no one was responsible. So it really comes down to individualized actions, the ways in which we can normalize our own vulnerability, the ways in which we can speak out against other forms of marginalization and othering, withholding supports from newspapers and corporations and politicians and talkback radios or day-to-day conversations in a gentle way even that refuses to play along. We all have a role to play in how bad things have gotten. And because those harms were co-created, solutions are also co-created. So I think that's a hopeful story. I mean, I'll just find other ways to keep on writing about it. But another thing I like to talk about is the unaddressed pattern of the past in the present. The ways in which if we fail to acknowledge something and heal something, it's not going to go away. You know, we see truth-telling is, you know, suppressed in relationships and dysfunctional family systems and in dysfunctional social systems because it's not something we can tolerate. We don't think that we can, you know, stand having a big challenge to our self-concept or, you know, the preferred characterization of the place we live in. But if we could just put it down and walk through the fire, we might find an amazing life opening up for all of us on the other side of that, if we didn't have to be complicit in in these systems anymore. So what would that look like and how could it, you know, start in small individualized ways on a daily basis? Mm. I I was also struck by the idea that of Tim Marsh's you. Yeah. One way or another, we will pay. Yeah. Tim Marsh is a barrister that I spoke to about the case that changed the way in which borderline personality disorder is understood in law. I was interested in borderline personality disorder because it appeared to be the acceptable locus of stigmatization in social and therapeutic settings for a very long time. I read about how I first learned about that at law school in the late 90s, that these people were mad, not bad, not mad. So given what the increasing knowledge that we had over the last two decades, that this was a severely impairing disorder, as impairing as intellectual disability or certain autism spectrum disorders, the question wasn't whether these people were bad or good, but whether they were well or unwell. It was an interesting case study to look at stigmatization and how it's accepted in our institutions. And happily, the law in that area has changed. It's now included 
in ways like any other mental disorder or illness, but it took a very long time to get there. And, you know, one of the physicians I spoke to said that, you know, the things that used to be unacceptable to say about HIV patients or um, schizophrenic uh, diagnoses, we would never tolerate that, but they're acceptable to say about borderline personality disordered patients. Mm -hmm. And that struck me quite deeply because, again, when we think about stigma, it has nothing to do with the inherent qualities of, of a medical diagnosis, but rather the function that it's serving for the people that are doing the stigmatizing. So that was an area that kind of opened up the ways in which mentally ill people are being warehoused more broadly in our criminal justice uh, system. Mm. And uh, I guess there is a there is a change to the system in that um, those with that diagnosis now will be treated differently. Well, yes, but it took an enormous amount of work, I think, from uh, advocate advocates like uh, Marsh, but also academics and um, clinicians like Danny Sullivan. And you know, I mean, I guess that's a good thing that there are people willing to invest in change and push for change. But it's a sad thing in another way because, you know, but for them, perhaps we would still be um, treating it in this kind of stigmatized way. So, you know, we need more people doing that work. It shouldn't rely on somebody who happens to have a, a passion or a social justice interest. It should be kind of a shared responsibility in which we fulfill the rhetoric of fairness and, you know, natural justice and a fair go more broadly, mateship more broadly in all of our institutions because that's the country we live in and we want to operationalize it, not because it relies on the goodwill of certain people in the system. You you quote John Kinnear, Mark Kramer and Peter Seng, system change as a way of making real and equitable progress on critical social and environmental problems requires exceptional attention to the detailed and often mundane work of noticing and acting on much that is implicit and invisible to many but is very much in the water. And I suppose that those advocates that you've spoken about had the ability to have exceptional attention to what was floating around them. And thank you, Sarah, because, you know, what you've done, this essay is a really astonishing work of of exceptional attention. I just want to tell everybody that you know, you you have to read this if you haven't yet, and to congratulate you on a really you know superb and and meaningful piece of 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 work. Thanks. I'm so grateful to you, Chloe. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so grateful to you, Sarah, for writing an essay like this for for making us realise that it's something that affects everyone, that it's about everyone. We're so grateful to you, Chloe, for unpicking it, for asking questions that we didn't know needed the answers, for understanding that we needed those questions. I appreciate your time, both of you tonight. Thank you very much for being on this Readings Zoom platform. We were delighted to be able to host you. And to all of you out there, thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you sometime very, very soon. (laughs) Good night, everyone. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thank you. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast at our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins.
All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Thank you.